Hey, curbsiders. I wanted to let you know that this episode does contain some explicit discussion of some topics that might not be suitable for young ears. So proceed with caution and please enjoy. The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like more hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we aren't responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. this one oh boy (laughs) i feel like we did a really good job and then there's a whole lot of stuff we're probably gonna have to edit out the very end of the show i think we're gonna be i think actively avoiding puns even in the introduction here i'm I'm excited to see how we we navigate this of course this is an episode where we're talking about erectile dysfunction with dr ashley winter who you will be meeting in just a few moments I'm, of course, Dr. Matthew Watto, here with my great friend, Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Paul, will you tell the audience, what is it that we do on this podcast? Sure. Happy to, as always, Matt. We are, as a reminder, the Internal Medicine Podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice-changing knowledge. I should also mention that we are joined tonight by old friend, medical education whiz kid, um, one of my favorite (laughs) human beings in the entire world, the, the great Dr. Hannah Abrams, who also produced this episode. Hannah, how are you? Oh, I'm doing great. Wow, what an intro. Um, and I have to say, this was a really great episode. I really hope that everyone will learn at least one or two things that they can use to make their patient's quality of life better. Dr. Winter teaches us about tips for using PD-5 inhibitors and how to adjust them, some expert thought pearls on the physical exam and on key history items. And she gave us some really helpful tips on how to discuss erectile dysfunction with patients. Before we get started, we did want to address and make sure that we mentioned up front that we know that not all people with penises identify as men. And so while we use some language that discusses specifically issues related to men, we also want to sort of acknowledge and also address that these issues are faced by anyone who has a penis, including our trans and non-binary patients. So Dr. Winter is a board-certified urologist who practices in Portland, Oregon. After residency in urology at New York Presbyterian Hospital Cornell, she did fellowship in male and female sexual dysfunction at San Diego Sexual Medicine um, and Kaiser Permanente. She's an associate editor for the Sexual Medicine Reviews Journal, and she can be found on Twitter very hilariously as at Ashley G. Winter. We have a great discussion, so without further ado, here's Dr. Winter. Ashley, we've been talking long enough now, so it's time to let the audience in on this fantastic discussion we've been having about uh, technical equipment. But let's let's get down to talking uh, about you. Can you give the audience a one-liner about yourself and give them a hobby or interest that you have outside of medicine? Okay. My name is Ashley Winter. I'm a board-certified urologist. Uh, I'm in practice in Portland, Oregon. And in terms of my... Uh, interests outside of medicine. I I would say Twitter, makeup, and clothes. <laughs> Buying too many of, of the, the last part of that. Um, I was recently talking to somebody and they're like, what are your interests? And I was like, social media, makeup, clothes. I feel like I'm at a high school slumber party <laughs> telling you this. Um, 
in Portland and I'm supposed to tell you that I'm like amazing at hiking or something. I don't know. But, uh, but yeah, that's, that's, <laughs> those are my, my primary interests. Um, my husband's a comedian, so I enjoy going to his shows, uh, even though I have to spend way too much time with him already, but, uh, <laughs> but he, but he actually is extremely funny. So, so I enjoy doing that, uh, especially because he has lots of jokes about being married to a female urologist and, uh, it's it's just great to see somebody make fun of you. So yeah, what what a pair. Uh, and I'm I do <laughs> <Yes>. yeah. Anyway, <laughs> that's great. So. Well, let's move on to a case because I want to make sure we have plenty of time for this topic. And yes. Hannah, you can do the honors. A case from Cashlack. Amazing. A case from Cashlack Memorial Hospital. So today we're talking about Mr. Smith. Uh, he's a 50-year-old guy with hypertension, type 2 diabetes. He has CKD2 and generalized anxiety disorder for which he's on citalopram. And he's coming in just for a routine annual physical. At the end of this visit, uh, he's asked if there's anything else he wants to talk about. And he sort of slowly mentions that for the past several months, he's been having difficulty obtaining an erection and asks if his physician can prescribe anything to help. So to start off with, when someone asks you this question, how do you think about a diagnostic framework for erectile dysfunction? You know, the diagnostic framework, most broadly, would you would kind of split between what we call like physical and psychogenic or some combination thereof, right? So uh, the typical young guy who has a strong nighttime erection and, you know, is able to get a good erection, let's say with masturbation, something like that, you know, who has erectile dysfunction with a partner, you know, oftentimes you're thinking essentially of performance anxiety associated erectile dysfunction. Um, and then, you know, there's kind of what we call the more physical, uh, which is typically associated with somebody, you know, with specific comorbidities like, you know, diabetes, hypertension, uh, you know, cardiovascular disease. Um, but, you know, there can be a, a, a wide range of, of incident causes, uh, you know, a post-prostatectomy, for example, you know, in more rare cases, you know, people kind of with a history of um, a penile injury or a pudendal issue. I mean, I had a guy once who, who had erectile dysfunction because he was an arborist and he spent his entire adult life in this, uh, like a sling? Like harness. Oh, that, a harness, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, it, he kind of had pretty significant, um, you know, kind of saddle injury from that. Uh, so it was kind of interesting. But so I, I, I'd say that was the broad framework. I mean, you know, it's not, it's not too specific. Uh, you know, I think when it comes to erectile dysfunction, a lot of the management is either just going to be the same set of treatment options that we usually go through in a cascade from like least to most invasive. And then, you know, obviously just identifying risk factors and managing those separately. So it's, it's pretty easy in that regard. You guys are, you know, fancy diagnosticians and, uh, you know, compared to understanding something like hyponatremia, this is absolute, you know, simpleton <laughs> stuff. So <laughs> We're sponsored today by Masterworks. You know, audience, you might not know this about me, but I, I care a little bit about investing. I'm, I'm a little bit of an investment nerd. And, you know, I like to have a well-diversified portfolio. And part of that is because I know that prevention is often better than the cure, right? I'm a primary care doctor. And nothing helps your portfolio weather the ups and downs of a volatile market like a well-diversified portfolio. 
And one surprising way to diversify your portfolio is by investing in blue chip art. That's where masterworks come in. Because did you know that artwork has little correlation to the S&P 500? And that means that when markets go crazy during something like a pandemic, art prices can help your portfolio hedge market volatility. That's why the Wall Street Journal recently called the art market, quote, one of the hottest on earth. And with Masterworks, investing in blue chip art has never been easier or more affordable, even for people like me. Masterworks is a billion dollar fintech startup that enables everyone to invest in iconic paintings from artists like Picasso and Monet. How cool is that? The most exciting part, Masterworks is giving our listeners priority access to their newest offerings. Just head to masterworks.art slash curbsiders to get started. That's masterworks.art slash curbsiders. See important disclosures at masterworks.io slash disclaimer. This episode of The Curbsiders is sponsored by ACP's Internal Medicine Meeting 2022, the premier clinical and practice-related educational meeting for internists and subspecialists. Join us in Chicago for Internal Medicine's premier educational meeting happening April 28th through April 30th, 2022. The Curbsiders will be there in person, where we'll have the real challenge of choosing from more than 200 scientific and practice-related sessions. These sessions include things like hands-on activities in the Clinical Skills Center, there are workshops, there are two keynote speakers, a story slam, there's an in-person exhibit hall, and there's all the networking events you've come to know and love from ACP annual meetings. This year, there are more CME and MOC opportunities than ever. There are extended post-meeting on-demand recordings access. There will be live Q&A sessions with expert faculty with real-time polling. And for this year, we'll have two high-value registration options. There is the standard registration that includes all the stuff we mentioned, plus 30 days of post-meeting on-demand virtual access to session recordings after the event, a chance to get some extra CME and MOC. But for your best value, you can choose the premium access that gives you all the standard registration stuff, plus an extended one-year post-meeting access to all session recordings. That's over 170 hours of high-quality content to choose from, and it also gives you a lot more time to earn that CME and MOC credit that we know and love so, so much. If you can't attend the meeting in person, ACP's got you covered. Virtual access is available for select live stream recorded sessions and CME MOC. Visit the registration page for more details. For the early bird discount, use code IM22CURB. That's IM22CURB. Visit annualmeeting.acponline.org to learn more. Register today to get the best pricing and bonus content or call to learn about our group rates. Can I do the thing that I usually do, which actually is just yeah. take things more fundamental? I, I'm just, I'm used to being around people smarter than me, so I have no shame doing this now. But can we define our terms? Like, I think. Yeah. By the time they get to you, probably, oh, yeah. probably we maybe have a sense of what's going on. But with me, it's almost always like I could use a little bit of help. And I think in terms of clarifying what erectile dysfunction is, is this premature ejaculation? Is this a uh, weakened erection? Is this anorgasmia? Like, I, I, I feel like there's probably some differences we should talk about. So before we get too deep into the rabbit hole of the history, could we just maybe talk a little bit about what erectile dysfunction means and maybe how to initially take a history that might be helpful to kind of take us the rest of the way home? Sure. And that is such a great point. I think, you know, this phrase ED has been slathered all over us ever since the blue pill came around in the 90s. And, you know, Bob Dole did that nice ad. Oh, God, I forgot about that. Uh, I'm just mentioning Bob Dole since he recently passed. So, <laughs> uh, and it came up in the news. So, uh, and I think we've kind of forgotten uh, how that actually is defined sometimes. So, you know, erectile dysfunction would be you know, the inability to uh, get or maintain a 
erection sufficient for penetration, uh, you know, to the point that you are satisfied with generally perceived as orgasm climax. Um, Now, there are you know, sexual dysfunctions specifically that can come along with that. Uh, a frequent one is premature ejaculation, which is, um, you know, having an orgasm or ejaculation, you know, sooner than you would like. Uh, you know, there's there's different diagnostic criteria for that. Uh, you know, the average duration of sexual intercourse, um, you know, uh, heterosexual, you know, penovaginal intercourse is is around seven minutes. Uh, I think there was actually just a thing that somebody was mentioning the other day. WHO defines premature ejaculation as 15, ej- ejaculating 15 seconds after the initiation of penetration, uh, which is kind of ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, it's not like you get to 16 seconds and everybody's <laughs> very satisfied. Uh, <laughs> um, and so those are, are th- definitely things to ask about, things like anorgasmia, uh, and ejaculation, right? So inability to orgasm or inability to ejaculate are, are technically two separate things, although people often don't realize that they're separate. A huge risk factor for, let's say, anorgasmia would be something like diabetes uh, because it does cause neuropathy um, associated with your seminal vesicles and uh, your ejaculatory ducts and kind of all throughout the male reproductive system, the smooth muscle there. So it can it can cause you to, to not ejaculate. Um, or and, Sorry, both. I'm I'm getting down a rabbit hole here, but basically, uh, you know, that is the er- definition of the erectile dysfunction, and it is important, you know, when you're when you're thinking, you know, inclusively about your patients, who is the person's partner when you're discussing, uh, you know, erectile rigidity, right? Because if somebody, you know, is engaging in, you know, anal penetration, it, sometimes the entry pressure could be greater than if somebody's, you know, engaging in vaginal penetration. Uh, you know, so, so that's something to keep in mind. Also, if somebody has a partner who's a postmenopausal female, uh, it's important to, you know, address if that partner has, uh, what we call genitourinary syndrome of menopause, right? So if there's introidal stenosis, uh, really important to treat that as well. Cause that can, uh, you know, make it easier to, to achieve penetration. And certainly it may be that penetration is not important to the patient at all. Um, but it's something that they're concerned, just like, does this indicate something's wrong with me? you know, and, and how do you bring that up? So just to recap what we've talked about so far, the, the two big buckets that you think of are, is this a physical cause or does this seem more like a psychological cause, which could be like a performance anxiety? Sometimes I joke around, like, do you, do you hate your partner? Like, or does it go okay when you're by yourself, but you hate your partner <laughs> and there, there's some problems there. But like you said, it could be just performance oh, yeah. anxiety. And then uh, the physical causes, I mean, we have to ask about prior surgery, injuries to the area, and then you said comorbidities are key, which as internists, like this is well within our wheelhouse to think about the kind of comorbidities that might cause a, um, you know, a vascular problem or a problem with testosterone. And then I guess medications as well would be part of what we'd probably be asking about. And then I, I had never thought about it this way, asking like, if they're saying insufficient for penetration, just asking what what sort of intercourse are you having, vaginal or anal, and you know the age of your partner, all that. I think that's that's uh, great stuff to consider, and more of the logistics of uh, intercourse for the person beyond just just prescribing a medicine and you know sending them on their way. Another reason why that is so important, right, is because I do have patient. You know, I have a patient who says, 
to me, I have erectile dysfunction. I just want to make sure I'm okay. It turns out, you know, me and my partner are, you know, do mutual masturbation and I'm very satisfied, you know, with my partner's pleasure and my pleasure. Um, and I just wanted to make sure it doesn't indicate something else. Right. And, and that does happen. And if for that person, it might not be right to offer any therapy, right. You can, you know, assess their other comorbidities, um, and give them, you know, education, you know, another important thing, of course, is that you can orgasm without being erect. Uh, you know, that is something that a lot of penis bearing individuals do not understand. Uh, but it is, hundred percent something you can do. Uh, so, you know, just educating basic things like that too, I think is helpful. So in your first office visit with Mr. Smith, you've, you've taken the history. We, we know a little bit about his comorbidities. He's taking citalopram. What are you going to key in on in your, in the physical exam portion? Uh, you know, what should we in primary care when we're, we're assessing someone with erectile dysfunction look for? Yeah. So in terms of, of, you know, the physical exam, obviously you're going to get vital signs and a blood pressure, uh, you know, in terms of kind of the, the genitourinary exam, you know, you, you look at the, feel the size of the testicles, right? Do they have really small, soft testicles that are atrophic? Um, you know, is there a varicocele, uh, you know, varicocele is basically the dilated, uh, you know, blood vessels around the, around blood veins around the testicle. Um, you know, you may not be able to, see one if that's not something you're typically used to looking for on the exam you know i'd say if you if they you can ask them to bear down while you're looking at their scrotum and if you see something that's like really obviously looking like a bag of worms then they probably have an issue if you don't then i would say probably don't worry about it uh, <laughs> um but it is important to know because varicocele can lower testosterone and testosterone and, and varicocelectomy can raise testosterone um so just something to to know what else? I, you know, when you examine the penis, you can feel for Peyronie's plaques because Peyronie's can cause erectile dysfunction. So Peyronie's is the presence of abnormal curvature of the erection. Um, and that is something that's, you know, acquired, not lifelong. Lifelong penile curvature uh, is something else, um, you know, you call cordy. Um, but, but do they have scar tissue and in terms of how to do that exam? So I know this sounds funny talking about a penile exam because I feel like in medical school, when we learned about penile exam, you just looked at the penis and was like, there's a penis, (laughs) right? Like it's like, what is the sophistication? You guys probably all know how to detect 8,000 different things when you listen to somebody's heart. And like when somebody pulls down their pants, like what are, what's so sophisticated about it? So what I do is I actually you know, you take the penis and you actually pull on it. And I know that sounds really basic, but, but what you're looking at is, is penile stretch, flaccid penile stretch. So if you take somebody's penis when it's flaccid and you pull on it and it doesn't stretch out at all, right? It just stays that same length. That's a very indicative sign of either Peyronie's or significant scarring and fibrosis of the penis. Um, so it's super basic and super easy. And, and then in terms of, you know, feeling for a Peyronie's plaque. So I basically just take my fingers and do I know this isn't, you know, there's no video associated with it, but I take, you know, my two fingers and basically uh, kind of just squeeze and then move down the shaft a little bit and do another squeeze and then move down the shaft uh, kind of like this. And and if there is a really big lump or scar tissue, you will feel it uh, and you'll be like, oh, I found the Peyronie's plaque. And you'll be very proud of yourself uh, when you refer them to a urologist if you want. Um, so... And, and of course, that is also part of the history. Uh, you know, do you have curvature of your erection? Wow. So that was a lot. 
in terms of physical exam, thinking through and just trying to summarize and synthesize what you've said, we will look in a scrotal exam looking essentially for signs of hypogonadism or signs of a varicocele, anything that could indicate to us kind of a low testosterone state. Looking at the penis itself, um, looking for sort of plaques and flaccid length. And then in general, just uh, for patients between 70, 50 and 70, we'll think about also doing a prostate exam. From here, I feel a little more comfortable in terms of ordering lab tests, but what, what kind of lab tests, what's your typical workup for a patient who's coming in for the first time with a concern about erectile dysfunction? Sure. So if they're young and it's really well established that it's, you know, kind of a, a stress-related or more psychologically related, and they confirm, yes, you know, I have excellent erections. Uh, you know, morning erections, I have excellent erection with masturbation, and maybe, you know, it's really that I'm, I'm losing it with partnered sexual activity, then in that case, I would not do any blood work at all. Uh, for anybody, you know, who's kind of middle age, let's say, you know, or who's exhibiting, you know, kind of absent morning erections, or even reduced morning erections, reduced erection with, uh, you know, masturbation, etc. Then the thing was, that you would get would be, uh, you know, a morning testosterone level. So the testosterone level should be done before 10 a.m., right? Because there is diurnal variation of testosterone. It does reduce with age, meaning, you know, if you get a testosterone level on an 80-year-old, it probably doesn't matter really that you did it, you know, at 2 p.m. But in younger men, that variation is greater. Uh, and so that is an important thing to be aware of. And so, yeah, I just say before 10 a.m., um, because if it comes back, right, if they did it at 8 p.m. and it comes back low, the normal value reference range is based off morning testosterone. So so the lab doesn't mean anything when you do it late at night. So that's something to know. So I always look at that on the lab report. Like, I told them to do it in the morning, but they did it late anyway, and you have to go repeat it. Um, and then I, you know, and this stu is stuff that you guys are, are more experts on, but, you know, really basic uh, you know, screening for diabetes, cardiovascular disease. So you get like a, you know, an A1C, a lipid panel. And then again, if they're between the age of 55 and 70, I do get a PSA. Um, again, because if it comes up that they're hypogonadal, then you want to contextualize the PSA with, with that, you know, when you're discussing uh, starting testosterone. Any value to um, FSH or LH levels? In terms of LH and FSH, so if somebody comes back with a low testosterone, then yes, you can do those tests. But if somebody comes back with a normal testosterone, and in the AUA guidelines, the T level cutoff that they put is 300, right? Um, but there's a lot of argument in different uh, consensus statements, you know, and, and guidelines. I think the endocrine society has their own. I get very frustrated because, you know, some uh, insurances will say, oh, it's within the reference range for this lab. Uh, and so they're not low T and we won't cover the T, but the reference range for that lab is you know, the cutoff for normal T is something ridiculous, like 175. And you have to realize that these, these lab values for testosterone are, are often normalized to the specific population coming in. So it's just looking at like, you know, what is X number of stand standard deviations of the mean of the testosterone levels that are being checked, right? And if we have a population that's increasingly uh, has diabetes, uh, 
you know, obesity, things that cause testosterone to go down, then, you know, the reference range of the average testosterone is not necessarily associated with a physiologic healthy value, right? So if we said, oh, what's the average blood pressure in America and all the people, you know, with within whatever number of standard deviations of the mean, you know, blood pressure doesn't mean that's a healthy blood pressure. So, uh, you know, I just, I, I really do tend to consider, you know, uh, if you want to be really simplistic with this, like 300 is a good value for determining like, you know, hypogonadal versus versus not. So that's a very long answer to your question about LHFSH. Um, yeah. But yeah, I don't initially I, check super it. Helpful. Yeah, and, that's not something. I, I, yeah. I want to see what the great Dr. Paul Williams here does. As we've established, Paul, in pre-recording, we have to say your full name when we yes. use your title. That, well, yeah, certainly. <laughs> no, that, that's not anything I go chasing down. I, I Actually, I wanted to ask, if you guys don't mind, back to the cardiovascular risk. I, I'm just wondering, you know, because often patients don't come in complaining of or reporting coronary artery disease, typically, unless they have symptoms or, you know, high cholesterol. So if someone comes in who meets the gestalt of Mr. Smith, so going all the way back to our case, we have this patient with some diabetes and high blood pressure and chronic kidney disease where presumptively, and tell me if I'm wrong about this, but I would see this patient and think this is probably vasculogenic. This is my long-winded question to you is how how concerned should I be about the rest of his cardiovascular health? Like, I, I guess, so how much of a marker or how much does it correlate between, say, vasculogenic erectile dysfunction and, say, coronary artery disease or other atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease? Do we know that? So if I read from the <laughs> guidelines from the American Neurologic Association, uh, right, they, and they have all the, if you want to see all the citations, because these are associated with citations, but uh, one, the degree of erectile dysfunction strongly correlates with the severity of cardiovascular disease. Uh, you know, ED may be considered a sentinel marker in men with occult cardiovascular disease. So meaning somebody who has absolutely no you know, cardiovascular symptoms. Uh, another statement, I, I'm reading straight from the guidelines here. So symptoms of ED may precede a cardiovascular event by up to five years. Uh, and when ED is present in younger men, it predicts a marked increase up to 50 fold in the future risk of cardiac events, wow. suggesting that young men with ED in particular would benefit from CVD risk factor screening and intervention. Uh, so, <laughs> so pretty concerned. Uh, you know, I, and, 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 and when you say young men, concerned. I think I mean, the I, age, the 40 to 49 age group specifically is what I had come across that that's like men in that age range presenting with erectile dysfunction that, you know, that those are the group where especially you got to I, I think at least they were to require aggressive risk reduction, cardiac risk reduction. Um, I'm not sure if, if, do you send these people for investigation? So I, I mean, I work in a, a managed care environment, so we have a very strong, like nobody's coming to me unless they're established with a PCP and that person is putting on a referral. Uh, so because of that, I almost never see somebody who hasn't had an excellent primary care evaluation. But if I was working in an environment, let's say, where I see people on a PPO plan and they just come to see if you for erectile dysfunction, uh, and I see that they have not been evaluated for these issues, then 100% I'm making sure that they go to somebody. You know, I in terms of my expertise in doing additional testing for cardiovascular disease outside of getting you know lipid panels and stuff, I don't have really any. Uh, but you know, the byline that I tell patients is exactly this. The erection is a vascular event. An erection is a blood flow event. And if you're having issues with the blood flow in your penis, you may be having issues with the blood flow that gets to your heart or gets to your brain. And that's why it's important to see what's going on. Um, and 
that modifying those risk factors can preserve the health of your penis. And I think that's also really, really, really a great motivator for people to, you know, say, I'm going to take my medications for my hyperlipidemia and my high blood pressure and try to lose weight. Um, you know, I going on another digression, right? The hands down, the most common cause of severe erectile dysfunction physiologic in younger men is severe diabetes, right? So the only men in their 30s that I have ever put penile prosthesis in, which we can talk about later, are men with profound uh, diabetes, you know, usually diagnosed as a child, uh, you know, not well controlled, uh, you know, and when somebody told them you're going to have, you know, chronic kidney disease, you may end up with vision issues, you know, maybe it didn't get to them, but I wish that in the counseling of diabetic young people with penises that they were set, told, hey, you will get really bad erectile dysfunction. You may not be able to orgasm. You may not be able to ejaculate because of your glycemic control. And, and so often when I talk to these people, they're coming to me when it's literally zero erections left. And I'm telling you people who are 35 and they say to me, I wish somebody had said this to me sooner right? Because that message is not getting out. So it's it's just a humongous leverage point that we have, uh, you know, in terms of having people do that lifestyle modification or the medications they need to control those chronic, uh, you know, medical conditions. So it's, it's so intimately linked with, you know, internal medicine. And I'm so happy to be talking here because this is just you know, so much you're, you're laying, you know, and it's, it's a real tool. So see, see yeah. also tobacco cessation. Like anytime this comes up, this is my chance to talk about 100%. Uh, tobacco use too. And, and this is a two for, because Absolutely. they, the, uh, cardiovascular risk reduction, exercise, lifestyle modification, it's gonna prevent cardiovascular disease. And also their erections might get better, right? We can, is it safe for us to tell them that, especially I'm not talking the 35 year old with zero erections. That's like, you know, coming to you needs a prosthesis. I mean, like in our primary care clinic, we're seeing someone has, they're just not happy with the quality of their erections. If they clean up their lifestyle, is there a chance that that could, just that alone could help with the erections, their sexual performance? It certainly could. And there's so many ways that this is kind of a web that interconnects, right? So if you lose weight, then your testosterone level may go up, right? Because fat fat on the body produces aromatase, which converts testosterone to estrogen and lowers your testosterone. So weight loss can directly just lead to increased testosterone. So if they've low T, that could help. Um, you know, different things like if you lose weight and you had sleep apnea and it went away, right? Sleep apnea is a big cause of hypogonadism or low testosterone. Um, so, you know, and then on top of that, right, if they're sleeping better, then they may have more energy. They're going to be more able to have sex. They're going to be more excited about it. And then on top of all of this, I say to people, right, sex is cardiovascular exercise very often. So it also behooves you as a primary care provider to have patients who are excited about having sex because that means they're at least doing a few minutes of push-ups a few times a week <laughs> or you know what what have you right so so that's great <laughs> when are people so excited about physical activity <laughs> like it's great <laughs> have your patients who are having sex 50 minutes a week yep, for exactly <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> this episode is sponsored by Squarespace Squarespace is the all-in-one platform to build a beautiful online presence and run your business. Hypothetically speaking, audience, 
Let's say you wanted to make a website in honor of the great Dr. Paul Nelson Williams, because he is a national treasure. I think we all can agree on that. So what you can do is go right to squarespace.com and start building your website, which is probably going to be called paulwilliamsisanationaltreasure.com. That's right. Squarespace is going to make it easy for you to build a beautiful website that's easy to use. You'll be able to grow and engage your audience by sending Squarespace email campaigns. You can share your posts on social media. They have great blogging tools and they have powerful analytics that can gain insights into who's visiting your site and how they're interacting with your content. And you can even collect donations because let's face it, people are going to want to pay you as a thanks for making a website in honor of the great Dr. Paul Nelson Williams. So head to squarespace.com for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, go to squarespace.com slash curb to save 10% on your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com slash curb to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. We talk about BetterHelp a lot on this show, and this month we're discussing some of the stigma around mental health. For example, some people think you should wait until things are unbearable to go to therapy, but that isn't true. Therapy is a tool to utilize before things get worse, and it can help you avoid those lows. We've also been taught that mental health shouldn't be a part of normal life, but that's also wrong. We take care of our bodies with the gym, the doctor, and nutrition, and we should be focusing on our minds just as much. We live in extraordinarily stressful and challenging times, and I can't think of someone who wouldn't benefit from therapy to help process the thoughts and emotions that come along with these stresses. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It is much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Give it a try and see why over 2 million people have used BetterHelp online therapy. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, and Curbsiders listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com slash Curb. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash Curb. I'll, I'll say this this episode and this idea for this episode was born out of starting in my primary care clinic as like an excited intern ready to talk to people about, you know, exercising three to five times a, per week um, and finding, yes. not in that way, but it, then in finding that patients were often <laughs> uncomfortable. And, you know, I had so many patients who had never had a female doctor and who had sildenafil on their med list and didn't want to mention it to me are sort of like, let me know that they need to refills or tell me why they had stopped taking their SSRI. And so I'm wondering if you have any tips for sort of navigating across patient discomfort with this, especially like across a gender difference. Sure. So one really easy thing you could do is if you have, let's say, you know, intake questionnaires is include some questions about sexual function there, because oftentimes patients who are scared to bring something up will put it down, right? Like, so if you say, you know, just some little box, like, do you have erectile dysfunction, you know, and explain what that is next to it, right? Or do you have difficulty achieving an orgasm? Do you have difficulty ejaculating? Uh, you know, for female patients, you can ha also have that, obviously, for, you know, you can absolutely use, you know, gender nonconforming, you know, kind of gender inclusive language, right? So, you know, penis, blah, blah, blah. Uh, you know, so that's a really easy one, because then you, you screen for it. And when you're in the appointment, you can use that as, oh, I see here you mentioned that you're having erectile dysfunction 
tell me more about that. And not, can you tell me more? Just tell me more about it. Right. And if you're upfront, I find that so many people feel embarrassed or ashamed to talk about it. Uh, like, especially when you're dealing with age groups that are of a different generation, right, where this was really stigmatized. But just realize that sometimes when a patient seems uncomfortable talking to you, it's not anything related to you. It's it's a cultural difference that they have. And you're going to be the person who normalizes it. And, and 90% of the time, that just happens by just ask that question matter of factly. And honestly, I just ask, like, people come up with these things like, is it okay to talk about sex? I really don't like that language, because then it makes it seem like this is not a part of health as much as everything else is a part of health, right? Like, this is a taboo topic. Just say, I saw you wrote down you're having difficulty with your erections. Tell me more about that. And if they don't feel comfortable, you know, fine. But I think the the question of can I comes more to like physical exam, right? Can I do a rectal exam, blah, blah, blah. Absolutely. I understand assessing somebody's comfort before going ahead with that. But but just ask. And, and, you know, people will sometimes make a joke, but oftentimes they're like, wow, you just I will get the comment all the time after the end of appointments. Like I was scared to see a female urologist. I didn't know how this was going to be. And you just made this so normal. Like you just asked me these questions the way somebody would ask me about my knee pain. And, and that was great, you know, and, and putting too much mysticism around it. I, I don't think it really helps people. Uh, the other thing I'd say, you know, in terms of joking uh, around with people about this, when, when somebody says, oh, you're a woman. And I, you know, and, and I see, for example, let's say they introduced me to their wife. So I know that let's, you know, at least, you know, they have female partners and so I say, okay, uh, who do you talk to your penis about most? And they're like, well, my wife. And I'm like, okay, so is your wife a female? And they're like, yes. <laughs> and so, you know, with the point being that any straight male, uh, you know, you kind of just po- point out the logical fallacy of uh, not talking to a woman about their penis uh, you know, is kind of, is kind of funny. And then they're like, oh yeah, yeah, you got a point. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, certainly I, that doesn't apply to everybody. <laughs> Those are my main tips. Intake questionnaires, be matter of fact, uh, and, you know, just, just be chill about it. Like in my department, I am the sexual dysfunction person. I do the vast majority of the penile implants and my, most of my department are men, uh, and men in that, you know, men who oftentimes are several decades older than me. And I know for a fact that I'm most comfortable talking about sex. Um, so, you know, you don't have to match your patients to talk about a problem, right? You don't have to have cancer to talk to a patient about their cancer. Uh, and you certainly don't need a penis to talk to somebody about their penis. So, and you mentioned specifically a, a group of people who I think sometimes it can be really hard for for them to bring up um, issues related to having a penis and that this is just a body part, which is trans and non-binary patients. And I'm just wondering, like, do you have any tips specifically for talking with that group of people and for trans patients? How do you think about like causes of erectile dysfunction? Yeah. So uh, this is absolutely a great question. And I'm certain, I'm sure you guys have done episodes on, on, you know, uh, gender health. Um, so obviously a few different things that are important, of course, like in our medical records, we have the preferred pronouns and the preferred name and, you know, preferred gender, uh, you know, within the medical record. So obviously all of those things are there. Uh, I think it's important, um, 
So, and this is something we didn't touch upon. There are standardized questionnaires for, for erectile dysfunction. The main one I use is something called the SHIM, which is the Sexual Health Inventory for Men, which unfortunately is, you know, genderized, genderized language. You can look it up if you want to start using a standardized questionnaire. That is something you can hand out. But, uh, you know, classically that questionnaire, for example, you know, when it talked about penetration, uh, it said vaginal and, you know, you just take out the word vaginal and it just becomes penetration right? Because it doesn't really matter what somebody's trying to put their penis in. Uh, so, you know, the, that's something that's helpful. Um, and then, you know, when I have, you know, uh, let's say a, a trans or non-binary patient who has a penis, you know, one of, a, you know, an important question is, is penis, you know, is your penis part of like, is, is erectile rigidity an important aspect of of sex for you, right? Because there may be somebody who, you know, is just having receptive anal intercourse and it's not not that important, right? So, you know, maybe that person doesn't want medication. Then there is a component of education, uh, you know, regarding, you know, hormone therapy, right? So if they're on masculine, if they're on feminizing hormone regimen uh, and they have a very low testosterone, uh, then it is very probable uh, that they may have erectile dysfunction. And then, you know, you can go along the path of doing some of the therapeutics we'll talk about later, like, you know, PD-5 inhibitors, uh, which obviously don't have a masculinizing or feminizing effect. Uh, and those can be used very safely. It may not work uh, as much as they like if they have a very low testosterone. And then I think also, which is really important to remember, is that testosterone is in every human and it's important for every human regardless of gender, right? So this is one of my facts that I love like blowing people's mind with, the average female has more testosterone than they have of estrogen, right? And you can think of it as a, as a fairly equivalent, like molecules that you can make comparison to because they're both sex steroids, right? And one is produced from the other. Uh, and, and basically the average human, male or female, has more testosterone than, than estrogen, right? So this is this like, horrible part of our education where there's this teaching that estrogen is the female hormone and testosterone is the male hormone. And it's actually that both are both. And testosterone is an absolutely critical part of female libido and sexual function. It's just at a different level. So it's generally one-tenth of the typical phenotypic uh, male ratio. So Oftentimes, where I'm getting back to this, is that trans patients will be on a feminizing hormone regimen that essentially takes their testosterone down to zero, not to what a physiologic uh, cisgendered female testosterone level would be. And I find that very problematic, and it's something that is overlooked in many hormone regimens. So for those patients, they can A, be given testosterone at a very low dose, physiologic, uh, you know, cisgender female level, which will not lead to androgenizing symptoms. And it can help with libido and other aspects of sexual dysfunction. So I think that is a huge part of this, obviously, you know, whatever. So that's my, my take on that. That, <laughs> yes. is, that is really an interesting point. I, I love that teaching point that, um, you know, that the, the regimens for some patients are like just obliterating testosterone which is needed to some degree for both men and women. That's a, that's a great point. I had never, never been taught that before. At this point in the episode, Dr. Winter reminded us that there are certain meds that she sees in her practice that commonly are causing sexual dysfunction or erectile dysfunction 
The two specific ones that she doesn't like are spironolactone and finasteride. Both have been associated with sexual side effects and erectile dysfunction. So be sure that if you are going to use these medications, that you discuss those potential side effects with your patient and that you monitor your patients for side effects to make sure that the benefits are outweighing any side effects they're experiencing. On a similar note, certain SSRIs like paroxetine and sertraline have also been associated with sexual dysfunction, so be sure to monitor for that as well. Going back to our case with Mr. Smith, he let's say he tells you he's had decreased firmness of his erections both during intercourse and also at the morning, and he's also having difficulty maintaining his erection during intercourse. Uh, we do just some basic labs, as you suggested. Uh, his lipid panel is pretty normal. His creatinine is 1.1 and his A1C is 7.9. So at this point, how would you think about starting therapy for Mr. Smith? And can you give us some tips on like which to start with and if it matters in terms of PDE5s? Okay, great question. So PDE5 inhibitors, right, um, there's a lot of them. Uh, you know, the most common ones would be sildenafil, tadalafil, verdenafil. Uh, there are other, at least one more, uh, and it's escaping me at the moment. If you look again at the American Urologic Association guidelines on erectile dysfunction, there is some interesting information about these medications. Uh, essentially, uh, if you look at studies, they all basically have around the same efficacy, okay? So that is a super, super, super key thing to know. You can tweak what they take based on duration of efficacy, cost, right? Which ones have generics available? But it's not the sort of thing where if somebody is on the maximum dose of sildenafil, which aka Viagra, right, that they're going to switch to Tadalafil, uh, aka, you know, Cialis, uh, and that's going to be like, whoa, you know, <laughs> this one didn't work. This one's really going to work. It's it's like the same. They're all kind of the same. So I pick other reasons. So what are my key factors, right? So the mo- ones I use the vast majority of the time are sildenafil and tadalafil. So tadalafil, the main reason for it is because it's longer acting. So if you take it on demand, it's dosed maximum at 20 milligrams. And uh, it lasts generally, you know, 48 to 72 hours. So that's the one that they call like the weekend pill. (laughs) So you say, oh, take it Friday afternoon. And it's kind of in your system all the time. The other really great thing that you can do with Tadalafil is if you take it once a day, instead of that 20 milligrams, you take it at five, right? Because it has such a long half-life, you build up a steady state that in clinical efficacy for the penis is the same as the on-demand dose. Okay. So if somebody says to me, I really don't want to take those. It messes with my spontaneity. I hate that we do the foreplay and I take the pill and then I have to wait an hour. It's messing everything up. Right. Or I don't know when I'm going to have sex. That is an awesome pill for them. Those patients love it. Right. Just taking it every day. Um, the other benefit is that dosed daily Tadalafil as five milligrams is FDA approved for lower urinary symptoms like BPH, right? So if I have a guy coming in with BPH and erectile dysfunction, that is my first go-to medication now always instead of Flomax or Tamsulosin, right? Because alpha blockers have negative sexual side effects, right? They will reduce ejaculate volume, sometimes interfere with orgasm. So everybody in that population who has 
either just BPH symptoms. I prescribe that as my first line because it doesn't have anti-sex side effects. And uh, if they have both, then I prescribe that. (laughs) I absolutely love it. I'm a huge fan. Tons of patients love it. If they decide that they get bothersome side effects that are common to PD-5 inhibitors, which are most commonly, right, headache, runny nose, uh, acid reflux, um, and they don't want to take it every day and they want to just use it on demand, they didn't waste their money buying the five milligram tabs because then they can just take two or four for a 10 or 20 milligram dose until they finish that out. And then you can give them a new prescription for the higher pill. So that is usually nowadays my typical one that I give most often. It used to be super expensive, but again, now there are generics available. Sildenafil uh, is the other main one I do, and it's just a shorter half-life. You know, So you typically think it's going to be out of the body around eight hours. Um, if somebody prefers that one, my typical tips are you know, if you have date night, do it, take it before dinner because technically you're supposed to take it on an empty stomach. Uh, so you don't want to go on date night and then wait five hours and then take it and then have sex at two in the morning, right? You just, just take it while you're getting ready, you know, keep, keep your sildenafil next to your cologne bottle or whatever. Uh, and again, it's lasting in your body like eight hours. So it's not like it's going to suddenly be gone. Right. Or if somebody says, Hey, I want to take it on demand, but I'm a morning sex person, right. Then either their sildenafil or their tadalafil, take it before you go to bed totally fine. It will still be in your system. So there are people who are morning sex people and they love doing that. So those are my typical tips uh, about initiating therapy. I I feel like when you go to order it, it says take one hour before sex on sildenafil. So this is, uh, you know, this was not taught to me that patients should take it on an empty stomach before dinner if they're planning on a date night. You know, that's, that's a great tip. Yeah. Tadalafil, technically, there's no labeling to take on an empty stomach, but sildenafil there is. Uh, So that is an important thing to be aware of. These are other top things that when you're counseling patients about these medications, or if you don't have time, because I'm sure none of you have the time, uh, you can make a little patient instruction sheet and give it to everybody, right? Key points are the things I mentioned, tips and tricks, whatever, uh, other key points, right? So these medications do not cause priapism. They do not cause priapism. They do not cause priapism. Okay. I have to say that eight gazillion times. It's so freaking But the commercial annoying. tells me if and you have I an understand. erection more than four hours, you have to go to an emergency. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Ah, ah, it kills me. It kills me. It kills me. And and they, I understand everybody thinks that happens because it's on the ads and it's part of the labeling. And why is it part of the labeling? I have no freaking idea. So if you look at the clinical trials that led to FDA approval of these medications, right? Like if you go to the the all the randomized control trials, zero cases of priapism ever reported in any of the clinical trials for any of these medications ever. <laughs> yes. Read the data. It's not a side effect. It is not a side effect. It's not a side effect. I just can't say this enough. It kills me. It kills me. It kills me. There's actually studies showing that low-dose PD-5 inhibitors maybe prevent priapism in people with recurrent priapism. So like people who are sickle you know, trait or sickle cell disease who have recurrent priapism that it may actually like through vasodilation, like reduce, because it's basically a, you know, in those people, it's like a sickle crisis in the penis and the vasodilation is actually preventative. So, so it's just garbage. It's like this huge misunderstanding about our super common med. Um, and I don't know why it's some, because of some of the garbage with the FDA, you know, patients. And, and here's another reason why you have to understand this. It's just key. Key, key, key. So there is essentially like, um, you know, kind of like an asymptotic effect on the penis in terms of the amount of 
benefit you're going to have from the PDE5 inhibitor or plateau, if you will, right? Meaning if I go from 25 milligrams sildenafil to 50 milligrams sildenafil, I'll have a pretty significant increase in the efficacy on the penis. But once I get past that, like past that 100, if I double it to 200, there's no more benefit to the penis. And this is important to tell patients because otherwise they start taking more and more. They're like, oh, 100 milligrams isn't working. I'm trying 500 milligrams. So it's really interesting because the penis doesn't have a linear dose response relationship in the penis, but it can for some of the adverse effects, right? So headache, runny nose, acid reflux. So what I tell people is if you take 500 milligrams of sildenafil, you're not going to get a better boner and you're going to get a horrible headache and you're going to waste your money. So just don't do it. Okay. <laughs> like, but that's also part of the reason why they don't cause priapism is because it, the penis doesn't, it maxes out the effect. Uh, usually, you know, and people are like, oh, well, there's this case report of this patient who came in and they were taking sildenafil and they had a priapism. It's like the priapism was from something else. Okay. It's not like, it's like saying, oh, I found this patient and they were on, uh, you know, they had been in a finger painting class and they got a, <laughs> so, right. It's like, it's like, no, you, we know it doesn't cause that. Right. There's all this like, garbage, like, uh, you know, or, oh, it was reported in the, you know, I mean, we know about all the negative with VAERS reporting system and the vaccines. Right. It's like confirmation bias. So um, I'm going way it too long. It must be so this, hard but- to watch, watch any major sporting event. And then hear that, like at every commercial. No, no. The other thing, so this is the super also important thing to counsel patients, right? Is that it does not cause you to have a spontaneous erection. And even though you know that, and I know that, the patient, you don't know that your all your patients think that's what happens, right? So they're scared of it because they think they're going to take it and it's going to give them a boner, right? Like this is a boner in a bottle, and it's not, right? All it does is enhance your natural arousal. So what I tell people is if you're sitting there and you take a whole bunch of sildenafil and you do your income taxes, you're still not going to have an erection unless you're like really into your income taxes in a weird (laughs) way. But other than that, you're not going to have it, right? So that's really important because people are afraid of taking these medications. Uh, My other key points, key points, right? They're so, so, so safe right? So many countries have these over the counter, right? If you go to the UK, you can get this over the counter, like, or behind the counter it is, but it's non-prescription, right? That's how safe it is. I mean, it is so safe. Like I said, people aren't going to OD on it. And then what was my last thing? Oh, gosh. Oh, it doesn't cause dependence, meaning that it's not a crutch. It's not like if you take testosterone, right, that lowers your native testosterone production and your balls shrink and blah, blah, blah. You're dependent on it, right? This is not the case. So uh, if you're using it for somebody with, a, you know, what we call psychogenic erectile dysfunction, right, performance anxiety, there's actually studies showing that if you have like a 20-year-old guy who's nervous and you give him that sildenafil, it's actually going to lower his anxiety and can actually cure the erectile dysfunction, and then he can stop taking it after a period of a few months. So there's studies showing that it's like self-weaning. Sort of like build up the confidence, the performance anxiety goes away, and then you can withdraw the medication. Exactly. So people think, oh, I start this, I'm going to have to take it forever. And I say, no, if you need it, maybe you'll need it forever. But it's not something that reduces your ability to have a natural erection. It's just absolutely false. And so those are key things that I would say, if you want to make a sheet to give to patients, these are the things that they care about and worry about when starting these medications. And it's super important for them to know. We will will probably make one that goes along with this episode. This is is fantastic. (laughs) 
Well, what about yeah? What what does the second visit look like? Or like talking about titration? Like my normal thing is I'll give them maybe a fifty milligram sildenafil and say try half a tab first. That way, if that works for you, then you you know then you have twice as many doses that you can take. But how do you talk to them about like upping the dose and what dose do you start at for for most people? Yeah, for most people. So if we go back to those two medications yeah. that I use the most, tadalafil and sildenafil. So Sildenafil, the max dose is 100, technically, Mm -hmm. right? I tell most people to start at 50, and if they have side effects, go down. Uh, And if they don't have bothersome side effects, then, and they don't have, you know, and they have a good response, leave it there. And if they don't have bothersome side effects and it's not a good enough response, then you can Mm -hmm. go up to 100. So that's what I usually do with that. For Tadalafil, if they're doing it on demand, then I typically prescribe, let's say, to start the 10 milligram tab, and then they can take two for 20 milligrams, which is the max dose for Tadalafil is 20 milligrams. So I tell them to do that. Uh, And then if I have them do the everyday dosing, uh, I'll start their first prescription at the 2.5 milligram tab. uh, And if they do well with that uh, and want to go up to five a day, then they'll just take two a day. And then after that, I'll just prescribe them the five milligram tab. But usually I just allow them to titrate on their own um, just because there's not enough hours in the day to see all the patients to titrate their PD-5 inhibitor. And it's something that they're, you know, unlike blood pressure or lab work, it's not something that really need, like they're not in the bedroom with, you're not in the bedroom with them, right? So it's like a, <laughs> so, so yeah, that's my algorithm, right? Kind of the, the middle dose to start. And then, you know, we pick their final, uh, you know, medication after that, their final dose. Yeah. And what about getting these meds covered? Because I, I think that's that's part of the cruel joke about this is the insurance companies will give them 10 tabs of sildenafil uh, per month. So they're, you know, then the person's like, what? So I'm only allowed to have, you know, sexual intercourse uh, like 10 times a month? Yeah. It, a lot of insurances don't cover these medications at all, or they cover it very meagerly. So my key workaround is if they do have BPH symptoms due to Dalafil daily dosing, right? Because that is FDA approved for that. And it will many insurances will cover daily to Dalafil if you put the indication as lower urinary tract symptoms far easier than for erectile dysfunction. So if they have both, you're not mischarting and you're giving them an FDA approved med uh, and, you know, fine. And then I give them like a 90 day fill and they love it. They just, you're, the, those patients will give you an, you'll have a wonderful Prescani score. Uh, you know, they, they, they love you. I'm sure we uh, can then, find at least one lower urinary tract symptom in all our men with erectile if you dysfunction. Questions, you'll find one. Exactly. Yeah. You will find one. Like, Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Just, uh, and that is, you know, it may be not every insurance, but definitely under Medicare. So anyone 65 and up, that is easy. And then, you know, for everyone else, I say, just go outside your insurance uh, because they're generic now, they're not that expensive. So what are the options there? We were mentioning before, not online, but whatever. GoodRx is an option, right? In my area, if I give 90 pills of five milligram Tadalafil, so the continuous dosing, without any insurance, with a GoodRx coupon, it's less than $20. So they're getting three months of this medication for less than $20. Uh, It's not worth your time to do a prior auth because 
that may be cheaper than if their insurance covered it anyway. I mean, for three months apply, that's cheap, right? So that's that. And then if, you know, oftentimes I do encourage people to just take the script and go to their local pharmacy, especially if you have a non-retail chain pharmacy, mm-hmm. like a, and ask them what is their cash price for these medications? Because then you're supporting a local business and oftentimes they'll give a comparable price, uh, maybe even something cheaper, right? So the GoodRx is not a requirement. Uh, you know, that's kind of a, one of those pharmacy benefit managers and like a middleman. So if you give them the script, at, tell them, go ask what the cash pay price is uh, for generics. It's, it can be surprisingly cheap uh, and most people have no issue. So I really think nowadays it's, it's actually not no longer the barrier that it used to be. All right. So the, the other thing, uh, Hannah, is this something, is this a problem in your clinic? Are people telling you they're taking uh, male enhancement su- substances or supplements, I, I should say? I have not yet experienced this because I think it's hard for, for patients to kind of tell me about these things. I do ask about them, but Paul, you had mentioned earlier that you, that patients have told you about it. How do you sort of like, how do you both think about this? Well, yeah, it's it's often volunteered once the discussion has come. Well, you know, I got these things from the corner. They, sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. Or my friend gave me this thing. I'm not really sure where he got it from. It's it's always it's sort of an unclear provenance, and I feel like it's actually been studied. A lot of those um, supplements actually do have PDE five inhibitors in them. For uh, so it's that it feels dicier. It almost feels like a harm reduction just, just to prescribe the medication. Say, please, for the love of God, stop taking this mystery substance, and just here, I will give you the prescription. But I, 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 I will defer, of course, to our expert. But I, I just worry that I'm. No, I. Yes, I 100% agree with you. There's actually, there was a great study, I forget which journal it was in, maybe a journal of sexual medicine, uh, where they took a bunch of supplements, like the top supplements off Amazon for male enhancement and actually, you know, looked at the chemical breakdown of what was in them. And it was, right, oftentimes a bunch of garbage, sometimes like rat poisoning and (laughs) and sometimes (laughs) PD5 inhibitors. Yeah. And like (laughs) basically garbage. So, So yeah, bad, bad to do. Now, the honest answer is there... Patients have this desire for supplements, right? Because there's this idea that supplements are natural and good for you, even though supplements are basically, you know, just non-FDA regulated pills. And, uh, you know, (laughs) I just have a lot of bad feelings about them. But if they really do want a supplement to help, so the best data... And the thing that I recommend the most is if they want a supplement to do an L-arginine supplement, uh, which you can buy at any health food store or online, et cetera. So L-arginine is an, a nitric oxide donor, and uh, they generally take it, it usually comes in like a thousand milligram tablet, and usually take it like three times a day, for example. And there are studies showing that that will enhance the efficacy of PD-5 inhibitors. They can get typical side effects like, you know, runny nose, headache, et cetera. Uh, another point on medications while I'm on this before I forget is just to remember that um, decongestant medications are vasoconstrictors and oftentimes those kill erections, right? Uh, so if somebody's like, hey, all of a sudden I got erectile dysfunction and it turns out you know, that they started using Sudafed, right? That, that can be killing their erection, right? And the reason I say that also is because if somebody has priapism, I tell them to take Sudafed to, as the first thing they do, right? So that is an important thing to also educate patients. And I missed that part on the, on the medication front, you know, of, of anti-erection medicines. But, uh, you know, vasoconstrictors uh, are very notorious uh, anti-erection medications. Thankfully, people aren't usually taking them because that's like, you know, vasopressors that are, you know, whatever, you're not like taking like Levofed at home. Uh, but, <laughs> but a lot of the um, cough, a lot of the cough and cold <laughs> medications have have a yeah. uh, decongestant in them and 
So it's something to look out for. I had never, never made that connection or, or thought about that before. Yeah. So that is when I do the injectable ED meds, I always prescribe Sudafed with every single one. Uh, because it's the anti, yeah. it's the first line anti-priapism med. But again, you don't need them with PD-5 inhibitors because PD-5 inhibitors don't cause don't priapism. Cause so you, you mentioned <laughs> it and Paul and I were talking about that. We, there, you always have a couple patients in your panel that are on these injectable medications. And I, I know they've been to a urologist because I am not telling patients, I do not know when to prescribe them or how to prescribe them. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about uh, the injectables? Let's say Let's say Mr. Smith is not doing well with, even though we put him on 20 of Tadalafil on demand or five of Tadalafil daily, either way, he's just, it's not working and we want to do something to help him. So what, what would you do as your next line? Okay. So if the pills aren't working, well, one, one other comment about medication. So if somebody also has overactive bladder, there's a medication called Merbegron. It's a beta-3 agonist. Maybe you guys are familiar with this medication. Yes. It's awesome. And actually, there's been studies showing that Merbegron also can have a pro-erection side effect. I think that they... I don't know if they're doing clinical trials to, to look at that or not. But if you have anybody with overactive bladder and erectile dysfunction, uh, and you can get them authorized for Mirbegron, uh, that also can be helpful. So I always do that too. So um, that's just another tip. <laughs> and so maybe they're taking their Mirbegron and their Tadalafil and they're taking their arginine supplement and that's not getting them where they need to be, right? So your options are, let's say, vacuum device, right? I hate vacuum devices, right? I mean, that's basically, you put this vacuum device on your penis, it sucks the blood in and you put a cock ring on with it, right? A constriction band. And that's the reason why they suck, right? Is they're good at getting so blood in your penis, but then you have to wear, you have to wear a cock ring for sex, right? Or constriction band. And that's not, that's painful. Okay. It's just, it's just not good, but they can try it if they want. So you can recommend that. The main other options are injections or the surgery. According to the AUA guidelines, they don't have to progress through those in a linear fashion, meaning you can be offer them both. So it's not like you have to fail injections to get in prostate in, pro, penile implant surgery. So I would just send them to a urologist at that point, and we can talk about both. Um, now, the basics of what are the things to know in the primary care setting about those treatments, right? Okay, so the, the injections... There's a bunch of different options. Uh, you know, the most common are some combination of uh, pimpavrin, uh, fentolamine, and prostaglandin. You don't really need to memorize that. But the main differences for your patients are the following. One, they don't cause the same systemic side effects as the pills because it is a local therapy, which is super awesome, right? Two, they can work much stronger. So if you fail the pills, you may get to a point with the injections where you have a nice, hard, rigid erection you're super excited about. They're much, much stronger. So th that's another good thing. Three, if you overdose on them, it will cause a priapism. That's why I always prescribe uh, a Sudafed with those people. But, and again, you know, dose titration, blah, blah, blah. You don't need to know any of that stuff. It's going to be prescribed by a urologist. The main thing I'd let patients know if they're thinking about it is that if the pills don't work, this is a great chance of working. A lot of times they get super scared and what I say is I, I watched so many people learn this in the office and I watched them do the injection themselves. And 99% of the time they're super scared. And then when they inject it, they're like, oh, I didn't feel anything. Right. Cause it's, it's an insulin needle. Uh, you can have them do a 31 gauge. So that's really small. Or I tell them, bring your partner. I mean, I always tell people to bring their partner bring your partner. You know, you guys can role play, you know, like sexy nurse or something before you, you know, have sex. 
uh, at home, right? So, so that's, you know, I'd say the main things you need to know about the injections. And then penile implants. So the long story, I mean, the, the short story there, right? I mean, uh, FDA approved device uh, allows you to be rigid, uh, fully implanted. So there's nothing you see on the outside. The main type is inflatable three piece. Uh, and that includes a reservoir that sits in the pelvis uh, full of saline and then tubing that goes to your scrotum and there's a pump and that connects to your penis. And so basically it's a closed circuit and you shuttle fluid from the pelvis into the penis and then you can deflate it on demand when you want, right? So the way I tell people to think about it is like an inner tube for the penis. Uh, we don't take out any part of the penis, uh, right? Natural sensation is associated with nerves that are not affected. Um, and so I tell people it's not, you're not bionic. It's still your penis. It's still your orgasm. Nothing is removed from you. And, you know, if anything, it will enhance your sensation, your natural sensation, because you're able to get more friction, uh, with penetration. I also tell people think about it the same way you would think about hip replacement or a knee replacement. It's still you walking down the street. It's just a lot easier. Uh, you know, it's still you having sex. It's still your body. It's just allows you to have the rigidity that you would like to have. Cause I know those are a lot of the holdups that people have, uh, in, penile implants as of now are still covered by Medicare. Uh, so people also think that it's something they're going to have to pay out of pocket for, uh, it's not, um, you know, and then, and then for private insurers, it's more dicey. Um, and then for Medicaid, uh, very uncommon, I think in some States, uh, penile prosthesis is covered in phalloplasty patients under Medicaid, but uh, almost never in the case of, you know, kind of a, a native penis. Yeah. So we we have to let you go <laughs> at some point. And <laughs> if, I mean, you've given a lot of points, uh, but if you, if you had, there's like two or three that you really wanted the audience to remember about this discussion we've had, what would those be as your, as your final take-home points? Uh, normalize talking about sex. Uh, just ask straight up. Patients will not be offended. They will be impressed and they will be relieved when you ask about these things. It's not offensive. It's normal. So that, that normalized talking about sex is the first thing. And the main thing that makes, makes patients uncomfortable about talking about sex is when their provider is uncomfortable talking about sex. So the more you do this, the more comfortable you will be and the more comfortable they will be. I can't imagine being in primary care. I don't know the answer to that problem. I'm sorry, but maybe make a separate appointment to talk about it or something. <laughs> um, and, and, and because, right, you don't need to send to a urologist for a lot of these things. All the meat that we talked about here, counseling about PD-5s, um, screening, comorbidity management, that's primary care. And it's amazing place for that, especially when you have a relationship with somebody. So you guys are like amazing resources for this, for your patients. Yes. Injection surgery, urology has to do it, but so much, it, you know, can be done in the, in the, in the primary care environment and really be part of holistic health. So that's my long answer to that one question. Just talk about sex. It's awesome. Um, and then I think the other takeaway would just be that PD five inhibitors are super safe. Um, and effective. I think we didn't talk about this too much, but in terms of like contraindications. Yes, thank you. Yes, because we, and I meant to talk about that. Contraindications for PD5 inhibitors are so overblown. You know, the real, the real time I don't give it is if they're active, like if they're actively using nitrates, right? That's my only 100% hard stop. Now, even if they have it on their med list, 
and it's not a daily, right? It's a PRN. It's really important to ask because it turns out somebody came in for chest pain to the ER and they were given a prescription, you know, for nitrates and they haven't taken it ever, right? That's happened. And suddenly this person, if you look at a cursory look on their med list and it says, oh, uh, you know, nitrates can't give it to you. And then they're being denied a really safe, effective, easy treatment, right? So don't deny for that reason, ask. And it's safe to give it. And, and you tell them if you feel like you have chest pain, well, here's my tricks for this. So if they if they are an occasional user or almost rare user, I, I give them sildenafil instead of tadalafil because it is shorter acting. And you say to them, if, if you've had sildenafil within the last 24 hours, you cannot take the nitrate hard stop. You cannot, right? And if you've taken the nitrate for the next 24 hours, do not take the sildenafil. Other than that, they can they can be on both. So, you know, give patients some autonomy, educate them, but but it's not a hard stop. Um, and then I think, you know, renal dysfunction, liver failure, uh, you know, probably start at like a super low dose. Uh, just the renal, the renal dysfunction, you're just saying just start at lower dose for for renal or liver dysfunction, just thinking about the metabolism of the medication? Yeah. And again, that's just because of the guidelines. And I think if it's like, you know, just they have like stable chronic elevated creatinine, but it's like, you know, nowhere near where they're going to need some sort of, you know, dialysis or anything, you probably don't have to adjust the dose. Um, but, you know, if they're if they're in a situation where they have severe renal or liver dysfunction, I would just start at a lower dose. But it, it's not like an absolute contraindication by any means. All right. Well, this has been so fantastic. We will uh, we will fade this into the outro, and I'm sure I'm sure the audience is going to want us to have you back for some some other talk about sexual dysfunction. This this was really great. So thank you so much. So helpful. Yeah, you're welcome. This has been another episode of the Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yum. <laughs> Great. <laughs> to the point. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com. And while you're there, sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. Plus, twice each month, you'll get our new Curbsiders Digest, recapping the latest practice-changing articles, guidelines, and news in internal medicine. We're committed to providing you with high-value practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts, or send us an email to thecurbsiders at gmail.com. A reminder that this and most episodes are available for CME credit for all healthcare professionals through VCU Health at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. A special thanks to our writer and producer for this episode, Dr. Hannah R. Abrams, and to our executive producer, Beth Garbs Garbatelli, who also runs our Twitter. Nora Toronto is the editor for The Digest. Maddie Mad Dog Morgan is on Instagram. Tima Karganov does the website. Stuart Brigham composed our theme music. Claire Morgan of Notterly edits our audio. And finally, Chris the Chew Man Chew is on Facebook. So with all that, until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. I'm Dr. Hannah R. Abrams. And as always, our main Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Thank you and goodbye. (laughs) 